Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome to Changes, the podcast where we discuss all things change. Hope you're all well. This week I have mainly been reading a proof copy of the brand new book, More Than a Woman by Catelyn Moran, and it's been making me laugh and guffaw out loud in bed every night and give, my husband's giving me weird looks. It's so good. And it has prompted me to remind you that if you haven't had a chance to listen to episode one of this series of changes with Catelyn Moran, please go do that. You will not regret it. That's a money back guarantee. Okay, on this week's show, we're focusing on a man called Paddy. Now, let me just give you some context. I've been driving into the BBC in central London every day for the last three months during lockdown. At the start, it was really strange. You know, London was an absolute ghost town. There was no traffic on the roads, no people on the streets. And still now, there's a bit more traffic. But in central London, there's just no one around. But what that meant is that people who were living on the streets in central London, who are normally kind of just in the background and kind of sitting in doorways and and, and kind of um, blending into the kind of fabric of, of, of the street, those homeless people are really pushed to the forefront because they're the only people on the street. So I've been noticing them way, way more and trying to find out their stories and how they how they got to be there and how they're coping. I've been really interested in trying to speak to someone homeless for this podcast for a while, but it's a, it's a strange situation because you by no means want to be exploitative. You want to make sure you're speaking to someone who is happy to talk about their experiences and is kind of trained to talk about their experiences uh, without it being triggering or kind of painful for them. So we went through a charity called Shelter and we found this man called Paddy. Uh, Paddy was homeless for five years, born in London, but as you'll hear, now lives in Birmingham. And Shelter connected us up. He's still in contact with Shelter, still works for Shelter as a peer mentor, as you'll hear all about. And we chatted over Zoom. Paddy is an extraordinary man to have come through all the adversity in life that he's come through. I hope, like me, you will be moved by his story. And just a little heads up about this conversation. Paddy talks openly about violence, about abuse and about drugs. So if any of that is triggering for you, just be warned now. All right, enter the podcast. Paddy. Okay, Paddy, we're going to start at the very start. This podcast is all about change and the changes that we go through in life and how we come out the other side of them. And you've had your fair share of that. But let's start at the very beginning. So where did you grow up? I can remember early, like, growing up in London with my mum and her partner at the time. And I was only a baby and she had twins, my half-brothers. I'm mixed race. My family's predominantly English and Irish. So at an early age, I can remember living in, in flats and being locked in a bathroom. I believe it was by my 
So he would have been my stepdad. I've never called him that, but that's I think that's what you'd call him. Yeah, and that was his form of punishment if I was naughty or if I cried, I'd just lock him in the bathroom. And I think on the back of that, he was aggressive to my mum as well. And she was only young herself and she was an alcoholic. And I think my nan took me out of that situation at the age of about getting on for three, two and a half, three, and brought me back to Birmingham. So basically I grew up with my nan and my granddad. They had 16 children. I grew up in a busy house. My granddad was really strict. He was a good man. He was a religious man. And they brought me up as a Catholic. I look at it now and it's so multicultural and all that. But when I grew up, it wasn't like that. You know, mm. where I grew up, there was a lot of racism. Anyway, I remember we moved to this new house. My granddad, you know, it was really bad. My uncle, one of my uncles was staying there. In the end, basically, my granddad went into an old people's home. You know, we couldn't look after him. Yes. And my mum was out visiting one of my other uncles who was in prison at the time and I was left in the house with my uncle Philip. I had a little pup, I had a dog at the time and I got me a little pup. Yeah. And my uncle Philip was hitting the pup anyway. He was a bit of a, he used to beat all his wives up and that his woman beat my uncle was. And I said, Philip, leave my dog alone, leave my dog, please leave him. And anyway, he got up, he said, who are you talking? And he beat me up, he stamped all over my head, broke my nose and I was only 13. Oh, and the police come and all that. And they took me and they took me for photographs. And at the time, it was like, you know, I can't grasp, you know, I can't get my in trouble because that's how good, kind of loyal to my family. And that was kind of my life. And I got batterings off a few of my uncles because my granddad had gone. You know, he couldn't protect me no more. And I was a bit cheeky, I'll agree. You know, I was a little, you can't do that. You can't touch me. You know, I was a little bit cheeky, I'd say. But not to the extent where to what Philippe done to me. And I think from then, really, I'll be honest with you, I think I started just to stay away from home. I used to go out and hang around in gangs. I didn't go to school because I suffered, like, in school. I didn't get on. I went to a new school in a new area. It was racist as well. At school, it was racist. They called me, like, a little packy and that. And I'm like, I even a... I grew up English, you know. I couldn't... I didn't know any other culture, and I was a Catholic. But because I was in this white area, no-one knew me, and I was new to the area. I really struggled. Yeah. And I remember I used to wag school and go fishing over the lake. And my school would be out on the canoes in this lake. It was really strange. You know, I remember one day I was going fishing. I bumped into the school board woman. She was going to take my nan to court. And I had to go to a key centre. But I wasn't bad, you know. I was just, I suppose it was escaping situations. Yeah. So you were um, a teenager then? I was a teenager. Like It was yeah. like I just had discomfort from when my granddad died. And I started getting into trouble with the police and... You know, just for daft things. And in the end, it was like with the gangs around my area, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of how it was for me. I started a job. I got a job when I was 16. I thought, you know, I wasn't stupid. I was 16 and I sent off a, a provisional driving licence. And I'd always been called all the way through school. My name was Patrick Burke. That was my name. You know, and I sent off for this provisional licence. And it come back and it says, um, look, you're not known. You know, we've got no log of your name and I went to my nan and I said oh, no what's going on look it's saying I'm not even known she kind of, she kind of looked at me like ah oh, like really like you know sympathetic to me she's gone come on and she gave me a letter and it was a national insurance number and it's got my real name on it which they refused to call it man because what my granddad it? didn't like it my name's Royston and, and your granddad and didn't like that name no they didn't call him and they called me Patrick they did and I, I never knew, you know, and I swear I never knew. Wow. Your mum called you that. Yeah, and even when I got... It sounds mad, because I got in bits of trouble in child end as a kid where I grew up. Yeah. And obviously I'd give my name as Patrick, 
And now when I get like a record check, it comes up that I gave an alias name, but I, that's what I thought my name was. You know, I wasn't trying yeah. to hide. So I didn't even know my name. It was strange. Where was your mummy in all this time? Was she still down in London? She lived in various parts of Birmingham in the end. She'd come back to Birmingham. And this guy had left her all the um, split up and she was a really bad alcoholic. So in the end, I had twin brothers two years younger than me. And I had a younger brother, two years younger than them, so there's four years difference between my youngest brother. They was like cousins to me, so she'd come up sometimes to my nans. I'd heard my nan say she, she ain't taking my son, meaning me. Right. And my nan would scowl her, kind of. But she'd come up and down and I'd empty her cupboards and give her some food and some money, you know what I mean? Because yeah. Mary never had nothing. I was too scared to talk to Mary, I was. I didn't really have a relationship with her. And I didn't want to upset my nan either. Yeah. And I felt really uncomfortable when she come. I didn't really yeah. have a relationship with my brothers because I felt uncomfortable, you know, and I didn't... I was really loyal and I loved my nan so much, you know, and I didn't want to upset her. So I never really had much of a relationship. So I started working and all that when I was about 16. And when I went to work, and I, I thought, I was like, yeah, I'm a man now, you know, and I was only 16, but... And the lads used to go out drinking and I go out drinking with them and... You know, and that's all I'd ever seen my uncles do. Yeah, and I had a job for two years, and I remember I went to, on my first holiday with one of my cousins, went to Mallorca, and when I come back, I was an alcoholic and I never realised. At that time, I still didn't realise. I come home and I left my job and everything, and then I started a funny life of, like, crime and stuff and trying to get by and um, trying to live by my wits, I think you'd call it. You know, doing a bit of crime and doing a bit of this and shoplifting and that kind of stuff. And I never really had a place in the world. I never had a father figure. I never had no one to guide me. Mm. Um, so I looked up to certain family members, cousins. I had a cousin. She was mixed race like me. And she, was, she wasn't the most honest of people. But you know what? She had a nice life. She had a, a lovely home. She had kids. And it's mm. something that I admire. Because where I'd come from, my nan's house, all my uncles and that was drinkers. And they sat around the house all day drinking cans on the dole. So... Right. Yeah. It was for me, I didn't have no one who went to work, you know. There was 16 kids, none of my family even drove a car. You know, that's how it was. I never had no, no aspirations at all. Like, talk me through that. What was your job? And was there a decision in leaving or did you just not uh, show up for work one day? So what happened, I um, I worked in this factory and I was making windows. Yeah. And, you know, I used to turn up every day. I didn't miss work. I used to get two buses to work. I was really good. I think I was good. But on the back of that, this cousin I used to go to, I used to go there every weekend. I used to go on my mountain bike up to her house and spend the weekends there. And I always remember that song was at the time, I'm a dreamer. Do you remember that? Do you, yeah. Do you, yeah, do you yeah. live in joy? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I babysit for my little cousins. And then I was kind of coming of age and then sometimes I'd go out with my bigger cousin, you know, and go yeah. out clubbing. I remember I got into Coast to Coast when I was about 15. You know, it's a big <laughs> nightclub, you know, it's like Coast to Coast. I thought it was bad. <laughs> and then that kind of club scene was coming out. And um, I went on this holiday with my cousin. And her lifestyle that she lived, man, the club scene and, and the shoplifting. And, and they used to be professional shoplifters, you know. It was kind of oh, like wow. good money, you know. You could go, go out with them, you could earn 100 quid a day just for holding a bag. You didn't even have to go in the shop. And, wow. I, and it, it, it was all right. And you'd only be out for a few hours, sat in a nice car, you know, get £100. And at my job, I was only earning £60 a week. Yeah. You know, so it, it looked good and that kind of life looked good. And as I said, I didn't have nothing else to look up to. I didn't have no one to guide me in life. So that was part of it. 
So I come off holiday and obviously, I suppose, looking back, the thrill of the holiday and the drink and all that, and I've gone back into work. And I think I was waiting to do it. Anyway, I think just someone might have said something cocky to me or something. And I just mm. said, you know what, I'm off. I've had enough and I walked out. I think I was just <laughs> looking for a reason. Yeah. And I think I went straight to my cousins. I don't know. It was like, look, I've joined the club. I've left my job. I'm with you. Like, come on, what work can we get in? I remember them for years, you know, from the age of 16 up until the age of 19. I never spent one night in the house. I used to go out pubs, clubs, tin, you know, all the local tin tins, all the local clubs around Birmingham, the dance clubs. You know, I used to take pills. I used to shot speed on the weekends. Not to make money, to go out clubbing. I remember Sunday mornings, I'd be standing outside the pub. There'd be no none of my pals with me, but I'd stand outside the pub. I'd go and get my first pint. After all, it'd be two hands, but I'd have the shakes at 19. Wow. But you know what? I'd, it didn't matter because I was all right. I wasn't like my uncles. I had all designer clothes on. I had rock ports. I was big in the game. You know, I had every designer brand you could think of. Yeah. You know, I was into crime. I was a bit of a geezer, I think. I had things in order. I had money there. I had, I had my fingers in different pies. I was shot in a bit of speed. And I thought I had life box, to be fair. You know, I had big gold yeah. chains and all that. For us. Like, you know, I really <laughs> thought I was big in the game. And on the back of that, I was on the dole, my jaw, I used to go to my nan's and I'd say, nan, just have the jaw, don't worry. And she'd go, I'm worried about you, Patrick, I'm worried. And she'd phone me, I know you're doing drugs, she'd say. And she was right, and I was. And I'd have a tear in my eye, but, you know, I was I was happy and I knew she was all right because my uncles had been in and out there, uh, there anyway. On this podcast, we always ask people for the biggest change they went through in their childhood. And I'm still, we're still in your childhood, technically, I guess. So as a the teenager. biggest change, the biggest change, you know, the biggest change was for right. one change. I went back home to my nan out of guilt, out of, you know, all that kind of stuff. Went back home to my nan. I still had a bit of a drink problem, you know, but I was managing. I got a job straight away. Went back into the window trade. And I was all right. And I was all right for a bit. And I started to link up with my brothers. They'd come down and see me, you know. Got a bit of relationship going with my brothers. Got them a job at this factory as well, where I worked. So four of us was all working in these factories together. One of my brothers at the time then started on using this thing. And I'd heard of it in the past, and I'd had a little taste of it, but I'd never done it. It's called heroin. And I, um, yeah, man, I had a smoke of this stuff called heroin, and it's like, you know, I'd done a lot of drugs over the years, and basically what had happened over the several months, the heroin that I took over from drink, from this and that, and I was using my wages to fund it. That was the biggest change. I was a heroin addict. Um, that was at the age of 19. By the age of 22, I was on a methadone prescription. I wasn't working, and I'd left my job. That life of crime that I'd kind of got out of and started working, I had to, without the comfortability of my cousin helping me and giving me £100 a day, I used to have to substitute my own habit. And because I wasn't working, it was through petty crime, like shoplifted. Hmm. As minimal crime as I could do to get the shortest prison sentence, which over the matter of 10 years, I was in in and out, in and out, in and out of prison. I I can't even remember how many times, just short sentences, anything from two weeks to nine months, you know? Yeah. To to 18 months, I think was the highest most sentence I got, just in and out, in and out, in and out. And were you still using in prison or were you were you Not really, um, bits and pieces, but coming out and not being able to wait for the day that I could pick up again back on the script, it just was non-stop and I never knew nothing. I never had no guidance around it. I'd go days with it, I'd go like three days and i think, you know, I was really happy and I'd try and do all good and I'd you know, be doing all the right stuff. But on the back of this, I was still trying to help my nan go and post office for her, doing the shopping for her. You know, yeah. so even though I was on heroin and all, 
whatever and I was a baghead. I was all right, man. You know, yeah. I never stole from my home and I looked at it from my nan. I wouldn't let none of my uncles take the piss with her, you know, because they were still drinkers and that. So I was yeah. still kind of holding it together. Even though I was in and out of the nick, and that was the other thing that done me in the end. I couldn't, you know, sick of my nan coming to see me at the prison. Like, I got out of relationship with my brothers as well through using heroin. I got to know my brothers so nice. much through using heroin together. That's mad, yeah. And yeah. do you know what? I can honestly say, if I look back, we had some laughs, so like we'd be, we start shoplifting. And I know couldn't shoplift, but do you know what? I was, the, I was one of the country shoplifters in the end. I was all right, man. Me and yeah. my brother Neil, we'd do the shoplifting. We'd get me over two brothers to, um, you know, be a bit saucy in the shop so we could have it. You know, just go over there, knock some rack over, and me would have it in this corner. And then what had <laughs> happened, if it come on top, we just that did be four of us. So in the end, like the one day, we was getting the chase from the security guard. I said, come on, lads, what are we doing? There's four of us. We just turned around, then the security guard run off from us. It was like something out of a film. What, he ran away from you? The security guard ran from us. Don't forget this four of us, you know? Okay. <laughs> and that's how it got in the end. And then some days wow. we'd go in the shop and say to the security guard, listen, mate, just do one. You know, we're having it. We yeah. need that fix. It's simple as that. And that happened loads of times. Yeah. So did you your know, brothers end up addicts as well? Yeah, we was all heroin addicts, four of us. Right. Four of us right. with heroin addicts, all using together. And then eventually using intravenously, you know, all cooking yeah. off the same pot, four of us. So a few times I've been in and out with my brothers, locked up, padded up together, you know, shipped from Stafford to the Green. They didn't like you being padded up together, shipped to different prisons. And and that was that life. And I remember I come to a stage where all of my brothers was locked up. I was that well known by West Midlands Police and by every shop. I was banned from every department store in the country. And I still am. And wow. I couldn't go nowhere. And I was just stuck on my own. And I was rattling my head off one day. And I had an old mobile phone on me. And I went into this pub. I thought, if I can just sell this phone just to fix myself, you know. Yeah. And I, I've seen this van outside and it was a window van. It was for a company that, that the first company I ever worked for when I left school. That job that was there. That I just walked yeah. out of after my holiday. And I seen the job and I said, all right, Irish. His name's Irish. Uh, I said, you, you know, I've got this phone. And he's gone, basically, he bought the phone off me for 15 quid. I got chatting yeah. to him. I said, you got any work? I was, I was that's how desperate I was. I wanted to work again. Yeah. And he gave me a couple of days' work. And when he was fitting the windows, he took me back to this factory, but it had moved area, but it was the same factory that I used to work for. And they all kind of, yeah, you're back. You know, we'd always knew we'd see you again. You was a great worker. Basically, offered me a job. Even though it moved area, I used to have to get free buses to work to get to that job. And I lasted at that job on a heroin. And in the end, alcohol. I was an alcoholic and a heroin addict. For 10 years, I lasted in the same job. Wow, wow. Yeah. Forged my bus pass to get to work, you know, because I'd have more money for heroin. And, and were you still living with your nan in the I same house? My, I was still at my nan's. I was a fool to myself, you know. That was the only person I was hurting through it. You yeah. know, I'd come home from work, I'd get my fix, get my cans and go and isolate in my room. I thought yeah. I was big in the game because I wasn't going to prison no more. Yeah. You know, I thought I'd made it in life. So it was a slow change. And when I was getting really old, you know, she was in her 90s. One of my uncles basically decided to come in and buy the house because she'd been a council tenant for so long. You know, there's a few quid to be made here, you know, 80% discount on the house, you know? Yeah. So somewhere along the line, he told the local council that I didn't live there. So basically, I got kind of kicked out of the house, really. Pushed out without yeah. actually realising it. Um, and, what and where did your nan go? What happened to everyone else in we, the house? We moved her into an old people's home. 
Oh my god. I ended up homeless. This all in the same year. You want some change? All in the same year. I ended up homeless. Um, I broke my leg. I broke my ankle. After two weeks, I went back to work. So obviously, I needed the money for my gear. Yeah. And, um, I messed my leg up even worse and ended up in plaster up to my groin. I was in a wheelchair for about nine months. So I lost my job. Um, oh my god. My nan had moved into an old people's home. I ended up homeless. And my nan died. I ended up living in hostels in the Birmingham city centre. And all right, you could call me a junkie. But I wasn't I wasn't a homeless junkie. I'd always I thought I was not better than. I just hadn't lived like that before. I hadn't been a homeless person. You know, I wasn't like a street kind of person who sat begging and all that. Mm. And I ended up in a predicament where I was a homeless person. I was just a homeless junkie. All in a matter of twelve months. I remember being in the doctors in a wheelchair and headbutting the wall and going, please, crying. And I was in these hostels and and he was putting me in with sex offenders. And this went on for ages. I lived in about 60 hostels, more than that. I've even lost counts over 60, though. Over 60 hostels? In how long? Over about three years. So so they just move you constantly. Why would they move you? I was doing two a week, two, three a week hostels. I ain't living here. I ain't fucking living here. I'd be like, no, no chance. No, I'm doing it. So it. you'd go there and it would be so horrible, you would, you'd say, I need to go somewhere else. And they'd so be somewhere horrible. else. not even horrible. So at the time, so like I was going through so much pressure. And on the back yeah. when my nan died, right, two of my uncles died just in that same couple of months. Two, but they're my brothers, you know, my uncles. I Jesus. Them. And I know yeah. there was boozers and that. Like one of my uncles, I was really close to my uncles, man. I like, ah, oh, Michael, man, when he died, my head fell off, you know, died yeah. of cancer and that. Your, Michael was your uncle? One of my uncles, he was like my brother, yeah. you know. So two uncles who were like died brothers. Died in the same you're... week in Highlands Hospital, both on different wards. Died in the same week, and that burnt me out. And then we had to keep that secret from my nan because that would have killed her. And then she died oh, just after that anyway. Oh, God. And then in the same time, you're completely displaced, chucked out of your house. Well, I never had nowhere to live. I lost all my clothing, all my possessions. My head was shot, you know. And, I'm just and your job. Through. I lost my job, you know. That was my form of income. Basically, ended, ended up homeless with this girl going from hospital to hospital, and it wasn't really a relationship. I think codependency thing with each other. You said you'd never lived like that before. You've always had a roof over your head. Do you know, at that time, my head was that burnt out, and my nan really hurt me. That summer, and st- like, as I'm talking to you know, I got t- I'm filling up with it because my, when my nan died, it was so strange. I couldn't, you know, she was my world. You know, yeah, That's, yeah. She, she was my rescue. She was my only. My nan was everything to me. Yeah, and um. Yeah, that was hard for me to deal with. And that made me use more drugs. And there was this thing out what all the homeless people were smoking. It was called Spice, I think they call it Mamba. Yeah. And I ended up on the Mamba as well. So I had another addiction. I was on the drink. I was on the, you know, I was on 130 mil of methadone at the time. And I had all these drugs just holding me together. That was the only way I can explain it. It was holding me up every day, making me... The way I was, you know, just trying to be... On that, I had so much aggression inside me. And I don't know, I was—I think I was just scared. So um, you had three years in hostels? Yeah. And then Moving what happened, I'd end up on the streets, I'd walk out, I'd end up having to rub it for a few nights. You know, I tried to go into the job centre and they said, I tried to sign on, I had an appointment, but because I was on crutches, they wouldn't allow me to sign on. And I said, well, why can't I sign on? They said, because you're not, you can't, you're not fit for work. And I said, well, I've been in a wheelchair for the last fucking three months, going around fixing locks. So I'm, you know, I'm fit for work. Mm. Which is what I was doing. I was still doing bits of work in my wheelchair, pulling it up around the corner from the house. 
and then limping wow. around and fixing locks and that, trying to earn money to get the heroin. Basically, I was kicking off in the housing because they wouldn't house me. I said, I've been a council tenant all my life and you've just made me evicted. My nan's died. I ended up, I got evicted from the housing, from the job centre. I couldn't conduct myself properly. I couldn't, you know, express myself yeah. with people. You know, and yeah. people wasn't understanding of the way, what was going on for me. Did you end up on the streets for... Loads of times I was on the streets. Yeah. So in, in the end, what, do you know what happened? So... My brothers, let me come back to my brothers. So I had my brothers. Over them 10 years I was working in that factory, Yeah. I lost track of my brothers, you know. I just lost track of them. One, but one of my brothers died. One of my brothers, the front, one of my brothers dead. It's about 10 years ago in a cemetery in Hansworth. He'd been dead for nine months. Um, he was a skeleton. The police wouldn't release his body for 12 months because autopsies and all that kind of stuff. And they believe he overdosed, to be fair. I think that's what happened. Um, oh my god, that's so sad. We, when we buried him, my other two brothers, one was in Blake and Earth, one was in Winton Green. So when we buried him, there was obviously my two brothers come from different prisons with screws, cuffed to screws. It was a funny old, you know, funeral. So this is what happened. So when I was homeless, there's a place in time it prescribes methadone and stuff to help you with drugs and all that kind of stuff. So that was in the city. So my younger brother got clean and he started working there. Yeah. And in, in there, they also do housing and all that. They're trying to help you with housing. So what I used to do is every night, I used to sleep under the subway outside this building and go there for a coffee and to try and get housing that day, you know? Yeah. And I'd see my brother outside and I'd say, oh, Nick, take that. I said, give me a coffee. And I'd hand him a can of special brew because I'd always have a can. <laughs> and I'd say, get rid of that. And I'd have my coffee off you. And I think it was a bit of a re- uh, cry for help to him, you know? You know and was he was he nice to you? Yeah, man, no, Nick is good. beautiful, man. He's a good, 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 good kid. Really good. And so did he, he help you get the housing? So he was on a different department, but he said, Pad, he said, when you want to give up, because ultimately I was a homeless addict. So yeah. homelessness and addiction, they normally go hand in glove, you know? Yeah. So I think a, a lot of my problems was the addiction. In these hostels, they put you in. They say they're hostels, right? Before you move in, you need, there's one thing that you need first. You have to be on benefits, you know, even though it's supported. So they won't support you to get on benefits. Give me your benefits, your national insurance number. You don't never see them again. You're given a room and that's it. And then maybe once a week they come and check to see if you're alive, you know, yeah. and then... So there's no actual support there, but it says support accommodation. That's what they get paid for from the government for to support you. Okay, so get, supported accommodation, it's but not, it's literally it's just it's just a room. You got a room, and, and you know what? If you're lucky, you might have electric. You know, and you might. <laughs> right. you, well, you'll have electric normally. Um, yeah. But that's it. You know, so so you you, you get a mattress. You don't mean to say you're going to get sheets with it, but you've got a mattress. But not all of them are like that. The majority are in the city. So that's what I was dealing with every day. And imagine then that. Imagine with thirty rooms in, and everyone's got a drug addict in it. So you can imagine you're just left to your own devices. So what yeah. I found was I was easier on the streets to try and get clean and that kind of stuff. I was easier sleeping under the subway because I didn't have people knocking on my door or not kicking my door in. Constant battling, people asking if I had drugs, do I want drugs? Do, 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 do. It just kept me away from it. God, um, yeah. So that was my life for ages, in and out. And try getting clean in that environment, you know. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. And then imagine being took seriously if you're a drug addict and you want to try and step out of that and then get into get your own property. Well, you're a drug addict, mate, you know. How yeah. could you look after your own property? Which they're yeah. right. But you see there's yeah. no move out of it. It's just you're stuck in a trap. Yeah. 
What did you find on the streets in terms of just talking about what it's like to be on the streets? Like, so the hostels, we know, were the kind of chaotic, really unsafe places. But on the streets, what was what was that like for you? And and what what did you discover about people when you were on the streets? So I've been to hostels, and a lot of the lads would get by through begging. Like, I tried it, but I couldn't do it. I never, you know, got a bit of change, mate, all that. But I just couldn't do it. I don't know what it was. I wasn't better. It wasn't above it. I just never had it in me. I wasn't skilled at blagging people for money, where some of my mates was. So the city wasn't no good for me. That homeless thing wasn't no good for me. And I, I'm more of a person that wants to support myself. I don't want to beg off people. I want to get better. The city and that homeless stuff was a phase for me, and I needed to get out of it. So really, there's some people in that city or around the city, and they're happy with that homelessness and that, you know, don't pay taxes and all that. That, that suits them. It didn't suit yeah. me. And there is a lot of help out there for people. I'll be honest, there's agencies to help. So what used to happen, obviously, you spend your money on drugs. So what happened to me was one of the biggest changes that come in my life was I was sat up this place called, um, in Burnley City Centre, it's on every night, it's called the Food Run. So it's okay. where people come out and give food and they give hot food and curries and all that. You know, Indian churches are really big for it. You feed hundreds. Anyway, I'm sitting up this food run and this, this lady's come over to me. And she's going, all right, mate, what you're doing? You're like, she's basically trying to chat to me. You know, one of the do-gooders with the badges on. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what I class them as, you know. And she had this badge on. I'm like, all right, love, you know, just, it's nice to talk to someone kind of normal sometimes. Yeah, all right. yeah. And I'm humouring her, you know, and she's asking me about myself and I was having a good old chin mug, but it's really nice. So anyway, she got this badge on it for a charity called Shelter. I'd never, I'd heard of it. I don't know. I think I've seen it on the telly, but I never knew it. And she was saying, well, I'm a peer mentor. I work for Shelter. And she explained what a peer mentor was. I'd never heard of it. Do you know what one is? Tell us. Okay, so she's explained this. She said, well, a peer mentor, what I do is I've got lived experience. I thought she'd probably call it the bus once, you know, something like that, lived experience. <laughs> That's what I thought. I don't, I don't know what kind of experience she's talking about, you know, what, what you lived. I thought she might have been on the dole once, maybe. And she started telling me a bit of her story. And the story was like addiction, shoplifting, all that. So familiar things to you. Prosti- well, apart from the prostitution. Prostitution, but I, re- yeah. I really identified with everything apart from that. But obviously it's a, a circle that I'd come out of. And as she's talking to me, my kind of, my jaws dropped I kind of filled up inside and I'm thinking, I'm looking at her and I'm looking at her clothes and I'm looking at the way she carries herself. And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, I never would have guessed. And, and do you know when you know someone's not lying to you, you can just yeah. tell. It's just yeah. natural. And the thing yeah. she said, and she spoke the same as me. And I knew she'd got the same education as me on the streets, I could tell. Yeah. And she told me and how she got clean and how she come through it. Because so, as I said, a lot of my stuff, it was homelessness, but it was addiction. Now, she basically told me that she'd gone through all that. She got clean. She'd gone through a really bad, violent relationship. From homelessness, she got herself clean off the street. She, she started doing voluntary. She was, And she started working as a peer mentor, which mm. is a start, you know, to normal living. It's a bridge to normal living. Where I'd come from and the area I'd grew up in, no one ever got clean. You either went to prison or if you did get clean, you normally sell drugs or then if you didn't sell drugs, you normally die, you know, there's not much other stuff you can do where I come from. No one gets yeah. clean unless maybe you've probably got thousands of pounds to go into rehab. These meetings kept happening about this is going on over a couple of weeks. And basically she started supporting me and she signed me up with shelter. Wow. Um, and she got me in an accommodation 
and I refused to live in there. I said, I don't live in there. So we had our highs and we had our lows. What was the there. accommodation? Do you know what it was? It was an old police station. And I've gone in there and they said, you got you want benefits? And I thought, here we go. I've and so you weren't on benefits? No, I was. I thought, yeah, oh, I you was were. on benefits. Yeah. The minute you said you want benefits, that's that's the, that's when you know you're not getting supported. Yeah. Because it, my point being, it shouldn't matter whether you're on benefits or not. If yeah, you go into a place and you're not on benefits and it's a supported accommodation, you should say, okay, no problem, sit down and we'll get you sorted. Yeah, you see? we'll support that's you to get benefits. We'll yeah, support yeah, you to yeah. get it. The yeah. thing is, they want you to sign you over to benefits, claim two to £300 a week for you, you know, to give yeah. you a room. So he's giving me my key, giving my national insurance number, and he's directing me down these corridors. And do you know what it was? It was an old police station and it was a police cell. Oh, my God. It was an actual police cell with them food mattresses on. And I said, listen, mate, what if someone shuts the door and he's going to just ring the bell, ring the bell? So, so basically, you put me in jail for the night. Yeah, so it was it was um, an emergency support accommodation, and I've nah, yeah. and I, I didn't stay there. I don't even think I, I went back and took in the kiva. So did you go back to the streets that night? Then you went and slept. Yeah, I off. think I slept in someone's. I slept. I found an old car and I slept in that. I think basically I went back to shelter, kicking off. I said, yeah, I fucking put him in, so you know, put him yeah. in a police station, you know. And I was a bit like like that, like yeah. aggressive and da da da. But not with Kalel was, and I was a bit vocal with her. I was never a great Yes, yeah, so, and I think she found me somewhere else. And then after a bit, I got some rapport with Kalel, and I started to trust her with some stuff, you know, and I, I told her about my family. And I, I had a lot of resentments on my family, you know, because when my nana died, my family, I classed at the time, there was like vultures. They took everything, you know, and I, I never yeah. had nothing from my nana. I never even had a picture of her. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it kind of hurt me. I had a lot of resentments. But anyway, Colette found one of my aunties. And basically, she wanted me going to rehab. She's spoken to me about it. And I, as I said, I never heard of it. I thought you needed money. Mm. Colette was putting in for me for rehab. And she got one of my aunties to put me up on her settee, basically. She got kids and all that, my aunt said. Yeah. And my aunt put me up and tolerated me being an alcoholic. And I was smoking Mamba still at the time. I wasn't injecting heroin. I was on my methadone. Yeah. And she tolerated me for about two, three months. And I mean, when I say I was hard work, I was hard work. Right. You know, I was just hard work. I was a drunk. I was basically like one of my uncles at my nan's house. If I look back now, that's what I was like. Of course, okay, yeah. And she put me up, you know. And then I remember her and her husband dropped me to rehab. This would have been four years ago. And I went in there to come off the drink, everything. And I went in there with a £10 mamba because... Yeah. Remember I said them all them drugs was holding me together. Yeah. And when you go into this rehab, all you get is one tablet a day. Diazzy and I knew what I was going to get and I knew because I've been a drug addict so long I knew that wouldn't help me together so I had to go in and every day for the two weeks I had to have two drags of mamba in the morning and that kept my head together that was confined then they move you to another rehab which you allowed out and I was in the next one for three months wow and I come off the drink I did but I was still smoking mamba but crafting being that I was they couldn't test you for the mamba because it's untestable Oh, so, God. But the thing was, so I'm trying to tell you the positive from this. I got off the drink and the drink was killing me. My liver's and everything yeah. was going. So, so that's, that was, such a, that's such a huge change for you for the first time in your life, actually having to try and, like, overcome the drinking. Was it was it hard? Yeah, so I felt like crying because these little test goes down the road from the rehab and we was allowed out and, it, and I had to go in and my, my drink of choice was special, bro. 
And I was on like 12 of them a day before I went into rehab. I was shaking for nearly three months and I had to go in there and nearly crying and I had to wave at the special room to say bye to them. You know, it's a thing what they do in rehab, you know, just say goodbye to, to it. Yeah. And and I did. Basically, I got kicked out on the new year. You know, Of the rehab? Yeah, I got kicked out on the new year for smoking mamba. Um, someone grasped me up. Right. I remember I got into a supported housing at the time and it wasn't too bad, this supported housing. No. I was still smoking the mamba. And I started doing these things called meetings, like you've got AA, NA yeah. and all that. Yeah. And I started to get a bit of uh, awareness around addiction, which is something I never had. I never knew, you know, I knew, I knew have a drink or I don't have a drink, get clean. I never knew the awareness with behaviours and, mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. I never had no awareness of addiction. They, they all seem really happy. They seem to me like they were still on drugs because was that happy? You know, these people, in <laughs> these organisations. But I knew they wasn't, you know what? Because my younger brother used to go to them. In the end, what, what I did was I, was I was smoking this mamba. I was back on my methadone again, but half the dose I was on before. So do you know what? I'm getting kind of better here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what I was doing then, I started selling mamba to, to buy my heroin every day. And... And it sounds really bad, but my head was gone because I had a bit of this nice recovery for three months and life was looking good. And, you know, I'm learning about personal developments and feelings and having yeah. a conscience. And and then I'm battling away with trying to sell drugs to feed my habit again. And I've got two, two different things fighting away at me. So what made you change your life in the end? What was the turning point for you to actually totally so change your it, life? So this was the change. Talking to that lady. Colette. Colette. She brings tears to my eyes as well. Tears of joy. Because if I yeah. never met her, and I'm not advertising shelter, she worked for shelter. So obviously I am, but I am. So I don't mean it as an advertisement. But if I never met Colette and that project that was going on, it was lead work up here, mentor. If I never come across that project, I wouldn't even be in there. You know what? I guarantee you I'll be dead. So she changed my life because she gave me a message that, you know what, recovery is possible. And then from recovery, I managed to turn my life around. So what happened from that day, I knew what, and Colette was in my head all the time. She showed me, she showed me what to do. All you got to do is do it, it. All you got to do is do it. So the stuff was laid out for me by her. I just needed to take it. So that Christmas, I went to Mary's, which is my birth mum. I knocked on her door in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve. I said, Mary, please, can I stay? I want to get clean. And she's gone, you can come in, Patrick. But she said, you can't use drugs in my bathroom, which I'd done on loads of times. You know, when I right. wasn't in the morning, I said, please, mate, I swear I'm serious. She let me stay there over the Christmas and I never used I went, You know what I even done? I went and got a taxi to get my methadone because I was too scared to walk the streets in case drug dealers stopped me and approached me for drugs to offer me drugs. Yeah, yeah. And I was really serious, you know. And I, just something switched in me and it... As I said, I don't know if it was a breakdown. I just had enough, and it was all reflection on Colette and, you know, what Colette had done for me, which hence was shelter. But it was Colette as a person. I'd had over 50 support workers in my life, but I never had a support worker like Colette. Yeah. I'd never come across that. who'd give me a wall, give me a hole. She'd give me everything, you know, about herself, which you get a normal support worker. It's, it's not like that. You know, they just get their wages and they go home. And is it because um, you you knew that she had been through what you had been through? Yeah, it was mad as well because my brother was doing the same path as what she'd done and my brother had got clean as well through the same yeah. path, through NI. So I stopped at Mary's for a couple of weeks and I went to these groups in the day, at that place where my brother used to work, yeah. where I used to sleep outside. 
Yeah. And that's where I used to get my methadone from. So they allowed me into their groups, only because of my brother. They said, if you come and give us a negative test, you can come and reduce on your meth in this building. So every day I used to just go and give them a clean test, and I wasn't using. And I'd sit in these groups for hours for the day. They'd buy me a day saver. I'd get me a bus pass and they'd give me some lunch. These groups are, these are the NAs that are kind of... No, these are not NAs. No. So these what are the just, groups? These are like methadone reduction groups to try and get right. stable. And, you know? I got it, yeah. So I remember, so this guy who won the group, Andy's name is Scott, so he's a nice guy. So at the end of the day, go, okay, everyone, so when you get home tonight, just go and write on the board what you're going to do when you get home. And I'd say to the whoever sat next to me, please write on that board. Because I couldn't even get up. I was aching. You know, the methadone was coming out of the system. and Yeah. Drugs, as I said, the drugs was only holding me up. And I, like I'd put on the board, I just want to get home in one piece without the school kids starting on me on the bus. You know, that's where I was at. You know, mentally, yeah. I was battered. Yeah. Um, just, you know, it was like I was two weeks to get home. And I got through that and I cried. My brother used to come and see me and I cried to him. I go, Nick, what am I going to do, man? What happened then? I found out about this housing called supported housing and it was called dry houses, which means that you go in but you can't use and they test you regularly. And I thought, well, that sounds really good to me because that's what I want. Yeah. I moved into this supported housing. Do you know what? It was actually supported, believe it or not. You know, right. someone would come and check on you every day or you could have the guy's number and he'd come and see you. And obviously you couldn't use in the house, so it was great. And I thought, well, hang on, I'm not going to have people knocking my door, whether I want this, do I want that. For 19 months I was in the houses for. And every wow. day I was doing voluntary work. And, and do you know what I was doing? I was doing the same stuff that Colette taught me. She said, you know, you're on your benefits. You just get yourself stable. You know, you do the right thing. You don't take off no one. You try and give back to society. And all this mm-hmm. stuff that Shelter had taught me, you know. And it's something that I never done. And do you know what I had to do? I didn't have to. In my head, in my conscience. I had to keep it a secret from my family that I was doing voluntary work. Why? Because they would have called me stupid. Because my family's kind of like that. You don't do nothing for nothing. You had to be paid for everything. And I thought, well, where's that ever got used? Like, you know, where? <laughs> to be fair. And how are you now? What's your situation? What happened was I was in the ACES for 19 months and I met a girl who was living in the same organisation and they kicked us both out. So I was homeless again. So this was just over two years ago. And why did they kick you out? Because we was having a relationship and in that organisation... Oh, you're not allowed. So that was okay. okay. Found this little hostel thing, you know, cock screen and everyone was using in there again. I'd go to the toilet, there was needles oh, on the no. floor. Yeah. I said, we're back, I'm back. But I never touched it and it didn't bother me and I'd done so much work on myself and I'd been doing these meetings and, you know, I was kind of high on this thing. It's called life, you know, I was great. It was, I was clean and I couldn't believe it. And yeah. you know what? That didn't phase me no more because I've learned so much off Colette and it didn't matter to me whether people used as long as I never. I was in this supported housing. But you know what? They actually did, even though other people was using in the house, they supported me and they supported right. me to get other housing. And I stayed in the house for six months. And in that time, I got a council proposal. And that was just over a year ago. We're going to full tenancy there. And then what happened on the back of that, because I was still doing voluntary, one of the um, team leaders at Shelter, she gone, Paddy, don't you think it's time you just got a job? And I went for this, <laughs> I went for this job as a peer mentor because I was doing that much voluntary. I had to give up my benefits. I was on really good benefits, you know. I was yeah. on like I was on this sick money and they called it mental health, but I was off my head for a while, you know, head button walls and all that. Yeah. And what happened was I worked it out, but the benefits 
Hey, wait, the wage is at shelter, but I thought, you know what, I'm living an honest life now, so you know what, I can cope with that. Life's not all about money. It never got my uncles nowhere, and I gave up my benefits. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I went on to this low wage at shelter, but it was a wage, and it was all right, and I was paying my bills, and then someone said, Paddy, why don't you step up? And I wasn't ready, and then I'm with this girl still, and I stayed with the girl, and about a year ago, she told me she was pregnant, and I'm 44, <gasps> Yeah. And I'm like, nah. And I thought, no, because I thought, listen, I, I, do you know all the, the shit and the substances I put in my body and the min, you know, I thought my minerals was done. <laughs> and I thought, there's no way I can have a kid. So we need, <laughs> I thought I was just done. I'm the bird, the bird I'm with, what, Sarah and I, mean, she's 30. But as I said, I've got a good few years on that. So what happened was just over six months ago, we had a beautiful boy. And do you know what we called him? What? Patrick. Oh, Paddy, I gotta cry. I gotta cry. So we got a proper Paddy Burke now, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So that's what my granddad wanted. So that's what he got. And do you know where I live? You never guess. Where? Right over the road. So listen, I Googled this. There's 250,000 postcodes in Birmingham. I live on the same one where my nan died. Oh. My God, you so have such a fucking just, mad life. It's mad, isn't it? So th- there's an old people zone where my nan died. I live just over the road. Like if I, I could actually throw a stone out the window, and not, that's not even lying. I could just flick a penny over to her window where she passed away. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What is the best thing that a person can do when they see a homeless person on the street? So I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to approach them. You've got to remember, everybody's got their own story. You know, do you know, look, I've just told you mine, but if you've seen me sitting there with a can of special boo me hand, let's say, yeah, and I'm nine stone with a big beard, you just think probably, I don't know what you'd think. Just remember everyone's got a story. You know what? I've heard a lot worse stories than mine. So everybody just needs to be aware of that. And you know what? What did I say? Most people are only a wage packet or two away from homelessness. More than ever. You know, or cir- it depends what circumstance throws it, yeah. Yeah. I never thought I'd end up homeless. Did you ever give up hope of finding home? Like, did you, you know, in, when you were in your darkest days, did you <laughs> did you ever believe that you'd end up to be able to, to be doing what you're doing now? Do you want the truth? I thought I would just die on the streets. Yeah, I thought I'd die. And do you know what? Colette is so much... Colette is... Because Colette says to me, no, Paddy, you've done it yourself. All right, and I get that, but... Oh, that's like saying... Um, 
that's not saying we go to school and we learn maths. I know we do it ourselves, but unless someone taught us how to do it, yeah. do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It was Colette who taught me how to live. That's the truth. How has the experience of living in that kind of chaotic world of of hostels and rough sleeping, how has that stayed with you? So now, so obviously I see it every day because all my clients are in the same position. Yeah. So, all right, I can get a good report with my clients because I know where they're at. I can talk to them straight. I'm like, duh, duh, duh. you know, I can talk to them properly. Yeah. Boundaries are a little bit hard sometimes because I'm so close to them on a level where I've been there. So that's something I'm still working on daily. You yeah, know? being able to understand? walk away because, and go back yeah, to be, being, yeah, I do. And having I get boundaries it. in place, it's a bit tough yeah. sometimes because sometimes I can forget how much I've grown. I can forget yeah. about all that and put myself still on the level with them because they are me. I'm no different to them. And I'll yeah. never forget where I come from. Yeah. Can just... it be emotionally draining going back to, to, to those places and seeing people in, in the states that you were once in? I don't, I don't like seeing it. And yeah. I tell you a thing I don't like to see around the city and a lot of it goes on is the bullying. I don't like it. I'm not happy about it. And that happens yeah. to some of like, my clients. People They get bullied by people on the street. No, other, other adults, vulnerable adults taking the piece. You know, just bullies because, don't forget, homeless people are the most vulnerable adults, you know? Yeah, The most yeah. vulnerable. So you've got bullies out there. People who do live in places and will take their money off and take their benefits off them. And it's not great, you know? It's it's not a person who does that to another person to prey on the weak. And it doesn't sit good with me. How has becoming a daddy changed you? So it's mad because I never thought, I'm 44, you know, so do you know what I've had to even do? I was wounded. I had to stop smoking. <laughs> but you know what? I wanted to stop smoking for ages. But then before he was born, I was on the bus and I seen this geezer with his two kids. And he was about my age. He even looked right. like me and he was coughing and spluttering. He must have been taking his kids to school. And I thought, oh, you're not having that. I can't be like that. Yeah. You know, I thought if that man took me to school, I'd be so embarrassed. So from seeing that man, it just gave me a little inkling. I'll stop smoking. I'm on one of these little puffer things now. It's not a vape. It's, an, um, it's like a white thing. You get it from the chemist and and you just put like a little nicotine cartridge and it looks like a little Tampax. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, dear, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've stopped smoking. I had a fag now for about eight months. God, Paddy, you've got no vices left. Your it's vices. bad, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> it's good. No, it's good, but like, oh, do you know what, as well, when I come, when I first, so three and a bit years ago, I was nine and a half stone, I come into recovery. Jesus and I'm, Christ. I'm like, That's I'm nearly so six foot, you know what I mean? Because you're tall, yeah. Yeah, I'm quite tall. So, do you know, I weighed myself yesterday. Have a guess. Uh, I don't know, uh, 12 stone, 11 stone? 14.3. Oh, yeah. So you're getting some good grub down your neck. Do you know what, though? I'm not a fatty, though. I'm kind of, I'm filled out. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of going all right, you know? You're happy. Um, That's what it is. You're happy. I'm content. You know, I am content. Paddy, last question. What is the change that you are most proud of to have got through in your life? All right. So uh, as we spoke, a lot of it was around my addiction. And copying myself on and waking up to it and, and realising that was keeping me out there even longer on the streets. So it was overcoming my addiction and that was through through support from Shelter and Colette. You know, if I never got into rehab and got a message of recovery and how to live a normal life and got that from them, then, you know, I would still be probably be... I'd be dead now. I wouldn't even be on the streets and I'd be dead. Yeah. Can I ask you about... Like, I'm reading this book on addiction at the moment by this guy called 
oh, I can't, Gabor Mate. I don't, I'm sure that's Gabor not how you Mate. It. Yeah, yeah Gabor Mate. <laughs> there you go. You know. Have you read it? I haven't read it. I've heard it's good though. It's really interesting. He talks about uh, addiction as you know, it, it's about torment and it's about pain and it's about what humans go through um, mentally. And, you know, you can do everything else with addiction in terms of learning methods of how to get off stuff, but you have to deal with the, the, the kind of base reasons for why you're addicted to things in the first place, as in what you went through as a person. Have you started trying to do that, like kind of deal with what you've gone through in your life? Or is that something that you're going to try and do in the future? Or I've done a lot of work on myself and obviously done and I and done shares about, about my past. Yeah. In regards to my addiction. I've had, yeah. I've gone for bits of counseling and it seems to bring up stuff like this. And as I said, I've dealt with a lot of it. You know, I, I, I do see Mary now. I still call her Mary. I can't call her mum. I feel like I'd just diss my nanny if I ever called her mum. And I don't feel like she's ever been a mum to me anyway. And how but is do, how is Mary? Is she all right in life? She's been is off she... the drink as well. She stopped drinking about three years ago as well, four years ago. Roughly That's about great. the same time. So she stopped drinking. Yeah, wonderful. I have regular contact with her. I say to him, come and see Patrick when you want. You're his nan, you know, there's no issues. Yeah. Um. So I try and keep her engaged with him. And my other little brother as well, Nicholas. As I said, my brother Neil's still locked up. I spoke to him on the phone the other day. He said he's going to go straight when he comes out and we'll help right. him. We'll see about that. I don't know. Yeah. Nicholas, um, he's a drug worker now. And he's got a partner in there due to have a baby as well in the next week. Oh, that's wonderful. So my brother's having a baby as well. So my little boy will have a little cousin. Yeah. Oh, Paddy, thank you so much You're for right. for your conversation today. It's been um, it's been so so interesting to hear about your life. Oh, listen, have a good good day. Have a good afternoon. Thank you again to Paddy for telling us so patiently his remarkable story. Paddy still works for Shelter, the very charity that helped him off the streets and with the help of Colette, of course, finally got him to see the light about his alcohol and heroin and spice addiction. If you want to support what Shelter do, and right now they really need your help, go to shelter.org.uk and we've put a link as well in the episode notes. So yeah, go there and see what you can do. Making this episode was a real team effort, so massive thanks to Abby Hollick, Louise Mason and Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Next week, we meet Irish author Sinead Gleeson, and she's got an incredible story to tell. Until then, take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.